We turn now again to the reading of God's Word, so turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And as we turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we do stand amazed at the vastness, the unfathomable depth of your love for us. Shown at the cross, you show your love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it is as those persuaded of that love now that we seek your favor again. For we turn to your word again, and we would behold the wonders that you have for us here. We would see Christ here. So, Father, you who have loved us so deeply, love us now again, and grant us eyes to see these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we last left David here in 1 Samuel, it was a few weeks ago. Remember, David was on the run from Saul. That has become the running theme, literally the running theme here in 1 Samuel for the past month or so. Saul hunting David down, and David's on the run and managing to escape from him. And remember what we saw last time, it was a few weeks back in chapter 23, David had to keep running and escaping at a time when it might have looked like he'd finally get some relief. Remember, he and his men, they saved that city. They saved the city of Keilah. And it might have looked like that city was going to become a place of refuge and safety for them. And instead, it turned out that the people of that city were prepared to hand them all over to Saul so that they had to get out of there and keep running. And then not too long after that, it was the people of Ziph who were prepared to do the same sort of thing. And remember, what kept David going, what kept him trusting and hoping, as he's got to keep running, was the knowledge that the Lord was his reward. Whatever the earthly human outcomes may have been, whether he was honored or betrayed or anything in between, the Lord was his reward. Reward, And so it's never a waste to trust in God and to obey God. It's never to be regretted or second-guessed, even if things don't turn out afterward in the way you might have hoped. The Lord is our reward and our rewarder. And that was true for David, too, and he knew it. So that was last time. That was chapter 23. That brings us to this week. That brings us to chapter 24, and at first, this chapter starts to feel like more the same. David's hiding, Saul's hunting, but then this chapter takes a turn. In this particular chapter, the tables are turned. Just when Saul's trying to corner David, it turns out that Saul's the one who ends up cornered. And naturally, it sure looks like this is David's golden opportunity. This is David's big chance to put an end to all this. At least that's the way it looked to David's men. But it did not look that way to David. 
So let's take a look here. 1 Samuel 24. You know I like to put out or point out some Bible geography whenever we dive in. We're told here that these things unfold in the wilderness of En Gedi. So we're down in the territory of Judah still. Judah was the southernmost of the tribes on Israel's map. So we're down to the south, and we're a little bit to the east over by the Salt Sea, the wilderness of En Gedi. So look at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, pause there. We need to say, by the way, we don't have a moment recorded for us in 1 Samuel in which God says those exact words to David that are on the lips of David's men. It could be that David's men are simply reading between the lines here. It could be that they're coming up with their own interpretation of what God had promised him which is that he was destined to be king, he was destined to to reign. It, It could be that they were coming up with their own interpretation of all of the successes that he'd known against his enemies because the Lord was with him. In any case, wherever it comes from in their hearts and minds, that's the way they put it. That's the interpretation they place on this circumstance that they behold. So let's keep going. Middle of verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David doesn't go nearly as far as his own men wanted him to. But even the little that David does, it bothers him. It bothers his conscience. In that culture, in that day, that gesture may not have been quite so little. To tear away a piece of a person's robe like that, especially the robe of the king. So it bothers him. And then David goes on to explain himself. He explains himself in such a way as to restrain his men from doing what he was not willing to do. So look at verse 6. David said to his men, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So David understands Even though Saul has lost his way and has lost it badly, he's still worthy of regard as the anointed one of God. David understands that if Saul's going to be brought down, 
It's going to have to be some other way that the Lord brings about Saul's coming down. David's got too much respect for God's word to take matters into his own hands. A verse like Exodus 22 28 might be in the background here. That verse says this, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Perhaps that's the kind of verse in God's word that is forging David's convictions here. Even though Saul has lost his way, he is still worthy of some kind of regard, some kind of respect as the anointed one of God. Now, let's keep going. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Now, we've got to say, by the way, that is a very diplomatic way for David to sum up this situation. If anything, it's Saul who's the one who's been saying to his men, David's out to get me, and everyone else is too, and practically everyone else knows that it's not true. So for David to put it this way is a very diplomatic, charitable way of speaking to Saul. And then he keeps going. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So you see twice there. He says, may the Lord judge David makes the case, but ultimately he says, and he says it twice, may the Lord judge here. Verse 16. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. 
And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is something we've noticed before as we've been making our way through 1 Samuel. In this day and age, if there was a change in kingly dynasty, that usually meant bad things for the previous kingly dynasty. Jonathan understood that, Saul's son. That's why Jonathan in earlier chapters sought this kind of promise from David, that David will deal kindly with Saul and his descendants. Well, here's Saul making the same kind of plea, and David makes the same kind of honorable promise, that he will deal kindly with Saul's descendants when he becomes king. So by the end of the chapter, Saul is saying the right things, even weeps as he says them. But of course, in the coming chapters, what we're going to see is that he doesn't really change. Doesn't really change his heart, change his ways. One commentator put it this way, quote, Saul has become the most reluctant convert in all Israel to the idea of David's dynasty. End quote. A reluctant convert to be sure, and I think we can add a superficial one as well. And that's going to become very clear in the chapters to come. So that's what we've got here in chapter 24. That's what unfolds here. David could have killed Saul, but he didn't. And the reason why he didn't it is, is that his own conscience testified is that it would have been Wicked for him to strike the Lord's anointed like that. He's got too much respect for God's word to take matters into his own hands. That's what unfolds here. Now, what do we take from this? Having made our way through the chapter, the question becomes, what can we learn from it? Well, here's how I'd sum it up. It's It's a story that sets before us the truth, the calling that we dare not go against God's word in order to get God's blessings. David models that for us here. David models that kind of restraint. We dare not go against God's word in order to get God's blessings. And by the way, when you do get them like that, when you do cut corners, in order to to gain, to grasp some blessing that's right there for the taking, they don't really feel like God's blessings anymore. Because you don't have a, a sense of his favor anymore in the enjoyment of them. We dare not go against God's word in order to, to get God's blessings because then we effectively rob ourselves of God's smile. And that is a real temptation. Think about how this would have been the temptation in David's life. Because it's true, he was destined to be king. It's true, he was himself now, the anointed one of God. And so strangely, he ought to have a kind of 
self-regard for himself as the anointed, the Lord's anointed, destined to shepherd the Lord's people in the Lord's name. And so it must also have been true that one way or another, this whole business of being hunted down by Saul was going to come to an end. It had to, somehow. And so you can imagine the temptation with one thrust of his sword to make it happen. To bring it to an end. No more of this hunting and hiding. Instead, the beginning of long-awaited ruling with one thrust of his sword. And you know he could have done it. And even if, even if David didn't feel that temptation inwardly, in other words, even if he didn't have to fight off an inward desire to do this, still, the temptation was there outwardly. The circumstances were there. David's men were saying, do it, this is your chance. So even if David didn't have to think twice, we don't know. Still, the temptation was there, and he had to resist it, and he did. We dare not go against God's word in order to grasp God's blessings. And that truth, that calling that David models for us here, that certainly touches down in our own lives. And it's not hard to come up with examples So you've got an eye on some promotion at work. And everybody's telling you it's practically yours. You're destined for it. This is what your whole career has been leading up to. And then a moment comes along in the presence of the boss when you've got a chance to take just a little swipe at a colleague who's up for the same promotion. Do you do it? Do you take that swipe? Now, obviously, it's not the same thing as what David was facing. David had a promise from God that he was going to be king. You don't have a divine promise about that promotion, but you get the idea. An opportunity comes along to reach out and grab something that you believe would be good to have. And it seems like everything's been leading up to you having it. But it would be wrong to reach out and grab it in the way that you'd have to in that moment. And you know it. Do you do it? Do you take that swipe? Do you cut that corner? You don't want it to be the case that you get some blessing for yourself in such a way that you're left looking back and saying, I wish I hadn't gotten it like that. I never should have given in to the temptation to get it like that. And like I said, at that point, there's no sense of God's favor, God's smile in that blessing. Now you're sitting there in your new corner office because you got that promotion, but it feels awfully lonely in there. And even your new secretary clearly doesn't want to work for you because he knows how you got there. Or maybe it's that one college that you're desperate to get into. And everybody's telling you it's where you belong. It would be perfect for you. And so you fudge just a little bit on the application. And then it's the same thing. You're sitting there 
on the campus of that college in your freshman dorm room in August thinking, I wish I hadn't gotten here like that. And God feels far away. Or maybe it's that one house that you're desperate to buy and live in and grow old in. Or maybe it's that one girl that you're keen to impress and win over and grow old with in that house, having gone to that college, having met her at that college. You've got it all mapped up. Whatever it is, it's something or it's someone who's right there. And the temptation is to cut some corner on what you believe to be right and true in order to manipulate the circumstances so that you get it. Do you do it? Do you cut that corner? That's the temptation that's in view here. David was facing it that day, in that moment, in that cave. And sometimes we face it too. And I I want us to notice two things here in this story that have the effect of turning up the heat on this temptation. The first of them is this. Notice how David's men try to persuade him to kill Saul in verse 4. They don't just say, this is your chance. They say, this is God giving you your chance. They say, this is God keeping his promise to you. And they may really have believed that. Look at verse 4. What do they say? Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. When they put it that way, the stakes have been raised. Now they've invoked the name of God in making their case. Now they have reminded David of the promise of God. It sounds so good, it sounds so holy and pious and right. Surely it sounded that way to them, but it didn't sound that way to David. But you see, the temptation to go against God's word in order to get God's blessings, that temptation is even more tempting when we can find a way to tell ourselves this is God's will. It sounds so good. And one of the reasons why that temptation can be tough to fight off, one of the reasons why it sounds so good, is that there is a little bit of truth in it. And we can acknowledge that. Because it's true to say that God, David's God, brought it about that day in his divine providential dealings that there should be that moment when Saul was right there, vulnerable, to be struck down. It's true to say that. We are Calvinists, after all. And so was David. We mean it when we say that everything that comes to pass in some mysterious way, God has brought it to pass. That's that's the truth that's enveloped in the warped fabric of this temptation. And so it's true in our own lives as well. God brought it to pass that day. When that moment came along when you could take a swipe at your colleague and grasp that promotion or fudge on your college application 
or skip a few details on the contract you're submitting on that house or try to make yourself look untruthfully good in the eyes of that girl. God brings those moments about. That's true. But of course, that doesn't mean that you ought to seize them just because the moment the opportunity presents itself by God's own hand. Christians like to talk about opportunities that come their way by saying, God opened a door for me, and in a sense that's true. But that by itself doesn't mean that you're supposed to go through that door. Maybe God in his providence opened that door for you in order to test you. So that you'd have an opportunity to find out about yourself whether or not you're willing to go through it. And so that other people could see it too like David's men that day. And that's, that's an important aspect of the story. Not just David's model of obedience and restraint and commitment to the word, but the fact that he did it, we might say, publicly, in the eyes of his men who'd urged him to do otherwise. So that's one detail here in the story that turns up the heat. The claim that's being made, this is God's will. And then the second is this. It's the fact that David must have been exhausted. I mean, think about it. He's been on the run for a while now. And not only that, but remember what we saw last time. He's on the run after an episode when it might have looked like he'd get some relief, but then it didn't work out that way. That's exhausting. And when you're exhausted like that, that's when the temptation is even more intense to resort to desperate measures, wicked measures, to get some relief, to to get to your goal, whatever it might be, to to get hold of something that you so badly want to have and that you think you ought to have. And I'm sure you know this even from your own day-to-day experience. When you're tired, especially when you're tired because something's been wearing you out and wearing you down for a while now, And you're not seeing any light at the end of the tunnel. You're not seeing any prospect that it's going to go away anytime soon. That's when you're suddenly open to considering shortcuts that under normal circumstances you would never consider. So I I highlight those two extra points, if we can put it that way. One, David's men make it sound like it's God's will. Two, David must have been exhausted. I highlight those two points so that we can appreciate the model that David is here. The temptation that he's up against in that moment, in that cave, is fierce. But even in his physical weakness... And weariness, his devotion to the Lord and to the word of the Lord is fiercer. It was stronger. Brothers and sisters, there is a way to make our way to blessing. But that way has got to be God's way. It's got to be God's word, which shows us the way. Try to get there some other way 
And those blessings that you wanted so badly end up feeling awfully hollow when you get them. So we see it in David's life. We notice how it plays out sometimes in our lives. And it's good for us to see how this was true of great David's greater son. And here we think about the son of David, who is Jesus Christ. Think about it. When the Son of God came into the world, he certainly had the promise that he was destined to reign. As the Christ, the Lord's anointed, and as Jesus of Nazareth studied the Scriptures in communion with his Father, he must have come to realize it in some way at some point. And I say that because it was in his Bible. It's in Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2? What God says to his anointed. Psalm 2 verse 8. God says this to his Christ. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Somehow at some point as he studied the scriptures in communion with his father... Jesus must have come to the realization that that was about him. That that was a promise for him. And then, imagine the scene. He's 30 years old. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God with whom he has just been anointed in his baptism. That same spirit drives this one who is the Christ, the anointed of the Lord, into the wilderness to be tempted. And sure enough, what's the third and final temptation? What does the devil say to him and show him in that third temptation? Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So you see, Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And he knows it. Jesus is destined to reign. He's been promised to reign as the Christ and he knows it. And in that moment, the one who, according to the Apostle John, has the world in its power says that about the devil, shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory. In effect, he shows the anointed one what is his promised inheritance from God. And he says, I can give you that. I can give you the world. I can make that happen. Just worship me. No suffering. No cross. Look at what I'm showing you. I'm showing you what you have been promised as the Lord's anointed. And all you've got to do to reach out and grab it is worship me. What a lovely sounding shortcut. To the throne of the universe. 
And what an awful, dreadful, wicked sounding shortcut. And what does Jesus say? Be gone from me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So it was true for David. It was true for the great son of David, who is our Savior. There's a way to make our way to blessing, to glory, but it's got to be God's way, God's word. Jesus knew it, and so Jesus resisted. Jesus kept going to the cross because Jesus knew that the only way he could rightly make his way to reigning and ruling was through suffering and dying. And certainly not through the wicked shortcut of worshiping the evil one. And think about this too. The two extra points that we noticed before in David's case, in that cave, all they were true for Jesus in that temptation. Point number one, the devil could make the case in effect, this is God's will, this is what he promised you. And point number two, Jesus was exhausted. Forty days without anything to eat or drink. But he resisted, resisted the temptation to cut corners. And brothers and sisters, now it's that Jesus reigning on high who got there the right way through suffering and dying and rising. It's that Jesus reigning on high who calls us to follow his lead. And thankfully, who strengthens us by his spirit so that we can so that we can resist in those little moments of temptation that come our way as well. And we can admit today, those temptations can be fierce for us too, but we can also trust in this, that God's grace is greater. So let's look to him for that grace today, and let's look for it with our eyes on Christ, the anointed one of God who led the way and who holds us still. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today, God of grace, for your grace at work in David in that moment, enabling him to resist a temptation that might have sounded so good, especially when he was so tired. And now that same grace is ours. It is ours in Christ, the anointed one now seated at your right hand. That grace is ours in Christ, who modeled that same devotion and restraint, and yet on a level that David couldn't have imagined. Thank you for the Christ who went to the cross. And it is with our eyes on him that we ask you, to deal graciously with us in that same way as you did with David. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.